0: That's Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW proof. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Not
1: people. Welcome to the show, everybody.
0: Welcome to the show. And we got a lot going on. So uh, a few days ago, three, four days ago, uh, the Supreme Court made their ruling on Biden's vaccine mandate. I put mandate in quotes because it's not really a mandate. As you all know, if you listen to this show regularly, um, we're going to talk about that. I'll give you all the relevant information about what they ruled. We have... um, Joe Biden has basically just given up, and it is really amazing to see Hillary Clinton uh, seemingly subtweets herself. Uh, you're you're gonna love that story. Um, Trump and DeSantis are now going at it, which is uh, lovely. I say let them fight. Um, and later on in the show, Nina Turner destroys a Joe Manchin staffer live on TV. Bernie gives the perfect argument um for class consciousness and uh unity against the one percent and then got some controversial stuff in here the joanne Reed story where she basically says hey punish the unvaccinated and uh pay them less money and make them pay higher premiums and all sorts of stuff so without further ado let's get started let's go ahead and jump into it i'm going to do that with biden's vaccine mandate uh decision So the Supreme Court uh, a few days ago made a ruling on Biden's vaccine mandate case. The reason I put mandate in quotes is because it's a vaccine or test policy, which is not a mandate. Um, But they did actually weigh in on the merits of a vaccine mandate as well in the case. So uh, the ruling is completely incoherent. Now, I will say I predicted the Supreme Court will either uphold the vaccine mandate or uh, they'll say, look, It can't stand as it is, but Congress would need to pass a more specific law with this policy in place in order for it to be constitutional. So I was wrong in the prediction that they're going to let it stand. In fact, I was dead wrong in that prediction. But it appears like I was correct with the notion that Congress can decide whether or not to pass this on their own. So, uh, but I'm going to explain why even that's sort of on shaky ground right now, because, um they're kind of weaselly in their decision and they make a bunch of terrible arguments. And now I'm of the belief that even if Congress passed a specific law, by the way, which they won't, but if Congress passed a specific law that said vaccinate or test, um, I think they'd still find a way to slap it down based on a lot of the the wording of the decision. So um, they decided the Supreme court ruled a hard vaccine mandate for hospitals is constitutional. So, The federal government is effectively allowed to say, um, listen, if you work at a hospital, you have to get vaccinated, no excuses. And they say, that's just fine. You can keep that in place. Now, they say that on sort of a technicality. They say because the federal government is threatening to withhold certain funds from hospitals if they don't do it, that therefore, uh, basically, the federal government has the leverage to say, you have to get vaccinated, no excuses. And that would be constitutional. That would be allowed. So on the one hand, they are they're giving a thumbs up to a hard vaccine mandate in certain fields. In this instance, it's hospitals. I'm sure if it came to nursing homes or something like that, any high-risk field, or at least any high-risk field where there are some nominal government funds that go to the field, they say that's perfectly constitutional, that's perfectly legal, Um, and there really is no recourse for somebody who says, I I don't want to get vaccinated. So it appears like even there's no ideological exemption, like, hey, I just did my own research and I don't think that uh, this is for me. Uh, there's no religious exemption, it appears like. So this is as hard a vaccine mandate as you can get, and they say totally constitutional. Now, they say the policy that is implemented through OSHA, and the president uh, ordered this vaccine or test policy for businesses with 100 employees or more, they say that is actually unconstitutional, and we're not going to allow it. So Let me go ahead and read you their main argument. Their main argument here. This is the crux of the Supreme Court's point in smacking down the vaccinate or test policy. Uh, OSHA empowers the secretary to set workplace safety standards but not broad public health measures. Although COVID-19 is a risk that occurs in many workplaces, it is not an occupational hazard in most. So do you understand what that argument is saying? That argument is saying... Um, yeah, you can catch COVID-19 at work, but it is not specifically an occupational hazard. It's also a non-occupational hazard that you can get when you're not at work. Therefore, since it's not specifically just an occupational hazard, the federal government cannot uh, do this policy. Or they at least cannot do this policy without Congress very specifically giving them the, you know, the ability to do this policy congress we need to pass it first um is the implication now again i'm not sure they actually believe that in fact i think if congress passed a, a law with specific wording they might even slap that down which means we're just implementing um a philosophy here from the federalist society which says that the government needs to remain incredibly impotent when regulating businesses so um, i went back and took a look at the wording in OSHA. So, in other words, what Congress already passed and the powers delegated to OSHA to determine whether or not I think the Supreme Court is really doing a plain-faced reading of what OSHA allows and doesn't allow. And holy cow, did I... I didn't expect for it to be this clear, the wording to be this clear. So... OSHA issues rules that provide medical criteria, quote, medical criteria, which will assure insofar as practicable that no employee will suffer diminished health or life expectancy as a result of his work. Let me repeat that. OSHA issues rules, this is what OSHA is already allowed to do under current law. OSHA issues rules that provide, quote, medical criteria, which will assure insofar as practicable that no employee will suffer diminished health or life expectancy as a result of his work. I think the most plain face reading of the authority that already exists under OSHA is that of course they have the authority to implement a vaccinate or test policy. They might even have the ability, I mean a plain face reading of this might even be a hard vaccine mandate is allowed under current OSHA rules. If they can tell you know, somebody who works in, in construction you are mandated by law under OSHA to wear a hard hat when you're at work. This is the same idea being implemented. Now, the Supreme Court might turn around and say, hey, look, yeah, brick might drop on your head while you're at work, and that's why you have to wear a hard hat. But you know what? There could be a freak accident where you're walking on the sidewalk and something falls from a large apartment building and hits you on the head, and then you die. So since this isn't just an occupational hazard, but a, a hazard for the general population as well. Therefore, we're not going to allow the rule on hard hats. I mean, that's functionally the argument that the Supreme Court is making here. That's the argument that they made with COVID. Since you can get it outside of work, is it really an occupational hazard per se? And by the way, there are you know tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who've caught COVID when they're at work who ended up dying as a result of it. So, look, I think it's fair to say you might even be able to constitutionally do a hard vaccine mandate under OSHA without any further powers delegated by Congress to OSHA. Now, me personally, my preferred policy is not a hard vaccine mandate. I actually agree with Biden on this. I think vaccinate or test is the best policy because you both give people their individual rights and freedom, freedom to even make the wrong choice, while also uh, protecting the collective and looking out for the community. And as leftists, we need to marry those two values, which sometimes can be at odds. And that's the best way to do that, in my opinion. But the Supreme Court is saying, no. No, you can't do that. You certainly can't do that how OSHA is currently written and implemented. And so what you get now is this incoherent mishmash of different policies. So let me explain. If you're keeping track of what the vaccine rules are so far, a local government, so like a city government or, or, you know, a government that's even smaller than that, some tiny town government, um, perhaps even a state government, they have the authority to implement a hard vaccine mandate where they can say, get the vaccine, no excuses. I don't want to hear about any, uh, any response about your own medical history and why it's not good for you. I don't want to hear about an ideological exemption. I don't want to hear about a, a religious exemption. Uh, a small government... A local government can say, get vaccinated, no excuses. If you don't get vaccinated, we can fine you. So this is like a hard vaccine mandate. That's constitutional under our current law. There was a 1905 Supreme Court decision, which has not been overturned, which states that it's perfectly constitutional for the government to force you to get that vaccine. That's still law in the United States of America today. So that's allowed. A hard vaccine mandate at the local level is allowed. A hard vaccine mandate for hospitals or high-risk fields, that's allowed. But it's not allowed... For the federal government through OSHA to say vaccinate or test at a workplace. There's no consistency there. There's no logic there. Look, call it what it is. All the time you hear about judicial activism. Right wingers accuse left wingers uh, of doing judicial activism. So you know the left picks judges that legislate from the bench that make up their own uh, rules of governing, and that's not the point of a judiciary. The point of a judiciary is to interpret and implement the existing laws and determine what's constitutional, what's not constitutional, it's called judicial review. Well, this is without a doubt judicial activism on the right. This is legislating from the bench on the right. And as I said, there's no consistency, there's no logic, there's no through line. You can do a hard vaccine mandate as a city. You can do a hard vaccine mandate in high-risk fields like hospitals. You can't even do a soft vaccine mandate under currently delegated powers that are clear through OSHA. You can't do a vaccinator test policy through OSHA. And so, look, this is, this is what happens when you have a Supreme Court that's super politicized and now very right-wing, is you're going to get decisions like this. And every time we talk about the current era of the Supreme Court we're in, I think it's fair to categorize this as a new Lochner era. For those of you who don't know, the Lochner era... Um, was an era of the Supreme Court. This is before, you know, the New Deal era, uh, where basically we had this legal philosophy in place that said um, you almost need to have a separation between government and business place. You know how there's a wall of separation between church and state? There was the, the argument was almost we need a wall of separation between government and business. And they interpreted this thing, which they totally made up, called a right to contract in the Constitution, which means that, some employee going to work for an employer, if you make a contract where you're getting paid less than minimum wage, less than a living wage, there are no labor laws and labor protections, there's no child labor protections, there's no overtime rules. If that employer tells the employee, look, you're going to work for the starvation wage, and um, you're going to, I'm going to work you to the bone, you're going to work 70 hours a week, or whatever the case is, When a state, in this instance, I think it was New York State, tried to come up with rules and regulations as to, uh, you know, workplace safety and basic labor standards, so they tried to say, hey, you have to pay at least this much, you have to uh, have paid more for overtime, you have to have a hard cap on the number of hours that these employees could work, the Supreme Court said the state government cannot interfere in the right to contract of the employer and the employee. So, hey, they came to that decision because they're both free adults. And therefore, who the hell is the state to be an independent third party to interject in that contract and say, hey, you need to make this a little more fair to the worker? That was the Lochner era. During the Lochner era, things like child labor laws were viewed as government overreach. It was a deeply ideological and judicial activist position on the right. And that's what we had in this country for a very long time. It was basically a judicial enforced laissez-faire, unfettered capitalism, bordering on anarcho-capitalism. And then eventually that was overturned with the New Deal era. But we've seen ever since um, the Reagan era and onwards, we've seen a gradual rollback of the New Deal and of the regulatory state. And so now, you know, it culminates in this. OSHA very clearly on a plain face reading of the language that's already been passed into law does have the ability to do something like a vaccinator test policy during a raging pandemic that we're in our second year of. But the Supreme Court says no. Now they would deny up and down, this isn't because this is our ideological position. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And they're trying to usher in a new Lochner era. And you know what? They may have succeeded. Because if we're seriously talking about during a two year raging pandemic, where we still have over a thousand people dying every day because of COVID, that you can't even do a basic vaccinate or test policy The Workplace Protection Agency, well, that's beyond absurd, beyond absurd. So not good, y'all, not good. I think this case was definitely decided wrongly, Um, and it's not a good sign of things to come. It's really not, because even though, on the one hand, they upheld a hard vaccine mandate, in the area where the policy would have the most impact in protecting people, well that's been slapped down and that does not bode well for people who are in these workplaces. Now, you don't even have a right to know if your unvaccinated coworker has it. So how it's much harder to protect yourself in a situation like that. Goodness gracious me. Goodness gracious me. So look, I mean, the most logical thing to do from here, which will not happen because it is logical, is that uh, the House should pass a very specific law delegating the authority to OSHA in no uncertain terms uh, that we can do this vaccinator test policy. Um, that could pass the House for sure. Uh, probably wouldn't pass the Senate, but it's worth a shot, you know, or... I guess if you, you had, you'd have to get it through reconciliation in order for it to pass the Senate, and even then, who knows if Mansion and Cinemo will be on board. But uh, let's say, for argument's sake, that did happen. Again, not going to happen, but let's say it did happen. Passes the House, passes the Senate, vaccinator test. Well, then they would need to do a new. Um, there would need to be a new Supreme or court case that works its way up through the ranks, gets to the Supreme Court, and then they'd have to rule on that. Now again, nominally, they kind of leave the wiggle room where if Congress does it more specifically, then it would be okay, but now I really think that even that they would, uh, they'd balk at, and they'd find some cockamamie rationalization to say, no, this isn't allowed either. So the federal government has no teeth to take the actions that are needed to mitigate a raging pandemic. Talk about a crisis of confidence in our institutions. This is the best example of that right here. Okay. Next, 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 here we go. Joe Biden has been taking L's like it's nobody's business. So the Build Back Better failed spectacularly. Um, now they're trying to get their voting rights bill through, and Biden is just coming across as so ineffectual and pathetic because he is. He went over to talk. He gave a speech the other day where he was, you know, trying to be tough against uh, mansion and cinema and the Republicans who were standing in the way of this. In the speech, he basically said, look, do you want to be on the side of MLK? Do you want to be on the side of the Civil Rights Movement? Or do you want to be on the side of Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of, of, what's his name? Something Wallace, the Southern segregationist. Pick a side. Which side are you on? And so he gave this speech. It's an attempt to uh, assert some political pressure, finally taking the move where he's going to assert some political pressure to get his agenda through. the problem is, it wasn't a very targeted speech. He didn't call out people um, by name. And then he met with Kirsten Cinema, had lunch with her, and then Kirsten Cinema proceeded to go and give a speech on the floor of the Senate where she says, "I'm not in favor of changing the filibuster at all, uh, not even reforming it." Joe Manchin said the exact same thing. Um, and get this: here's how sad Joe Biden is. Uh, after giving that speech, where it's like, "I'm gonna huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down." He went to Mitch McConnell's office to try to tell Mitch McConnell, hey, listen, don't take it personally. I wasn't trying to say that you guys are like segregationists and you guys are, are the bad guys in this situation. So if it's not about mansion and Cinema, who just spit in your eye, and it's not about Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, who are you talking about? Who's the problem here? So you get, look, you see his true nature, it keeps coming out, and his true nature is back-slapping politician who cuts backroom deals He calls Joe Manchin JoJo, even as he's gutting his agenda in a thousand ways, and he doesn't have the fight in him, and he doesn't have the intellect or the strategizing in him. Do you think he knows how to play hardball? Do you think he knows how to do the character stick approach? Do you you think he knows how to do what he has to do in order to win, twist arms, act like a mafia boss? You think he understands this? You think he knows what LBJ had to do to get his agenda implemented? No. You think he he has any idea what FDR had to do to get his agenda implemented? No. And so he tried in the most tepid and pathetic of ways, like, all right, this is me, and I'm going to be tough. And everything instantly crumbled. The House of Cards came falling down. So then he goes and gives a press conference, and look at what he says here.
2: get this done. The honest to God answer is I don't know whether we can get this done. Is this my con? I guess, anyway. And, uh, and well, I'm not sure either. But anyway, I hope we can get this done, but I'm not sure. But one thing for certain, one thing for certain, like every other major civil rights bill that came along, if we missed the first time, we could come back and try it a second time. I don't know that we can get it done, but I know one thing. As long as I have a breath in me, as long as I'm in the White House, as long as I'm engaged at all, I'm going to be fighting to change the way these legislatures have moved. Thank you.
1: I, I, I don't know if we can get it done, but if we can't get it done, we could come back and try again. But I, I don't know. As I say
0: every show, FDR is rolling over in his grave right now. I don't know, gosh golly. You know, when he was running for president, is that what he was saying? I don't know if we'll be able to get any of this stuff done. Now, understand something. If he had used all the tools at his disposal to this point, and we still hit a brick wall, that'd be a different story. He isn't even close to using all the tools at his disposal. He's only used like 20% of the tools at his disposal. For the love of God, call Manchin into your office. Call cinema into your office, respectively, and you have these conversations where you tell them, I don't, know, I don't know what you want me to tell you, Joe. I got this guy, Merrick Garland, at the DOJ, and this guy's on a warpath. He's not happy with you. And he's looking into your daughter for the price-fixing that she did uh, when it comes to big pharma. And they got her on email saying, hey, look, let's commit crimes. So Joe, I want to look out for you. I want to help you out. But you got to help me out if I'm going to help you out. Now, I, I could talk him down off the ledge, but it's going to take a lot. And so if you do the right thing, if you vote for Build Back Better, if you vote for voting rights, if you vote for the agenda, um, and if you're an advocate for these things, well, then I could probably save you. And I'll also make you a hero if you do that. We'll build a statue to you in West Virginia. We'll give you more infrastructure money. We'll bring you into our administration or a family member or whatever into our administration. You will be a national hero if you do the right thing. Now, if you don't do the right thing, maybe your daughter sees jail time. You know, Merrick Garland, you might be in trouble too, dog. I think he's investigating you. you got $5 million in dirty energy as you sit on the committee that determines what we're going to do in regards to climate change. You don't think that's a conflict of interest? You don't think that's a problem? We got, you're raising all this money for billionaires and, and, and right-wingers right now. I want to help you, but it looks like there's smoke there, and where there's smoke, there's fire. Merrick's on a warpath. He's coming after you. You might be behind bars. I want to help you out. Help me to help you. Help me to help you. Why didn't you do this? Because he doesn't have it in him. He's backslapping a good old Jojo as my friend, even though he's destroying everything about my agenda and destroying the country in the process. some cinema. you don't think there's crimes there? You don't think she skirted the few ethics rules that we have on the books when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to campaign finance? I mean, this is somebody who ran on lowering prescription drug prices when she was in Congress, and now she took a million dollars from Big Pharma, and she flipped on that position. There's absolutely something there. You you tell her, you tell Joe Manchin, look, if you do the right thing, you're a hero. If you do the wrong thing, we will make you public enemy number one. You'll never get a job in this town again, and not only that, you're never even going to get a job in the revolving door again. All these donors who are giving you money, you're their their buddies. Well, if I contact the companies that want to hire you, after you leave here and pay you a million dollars to do Dickie McGee's acts, and I tell them, hey, if you hire them, guess what? There's going to be an investigation into all the standards and practices that uh, you don't abide by, all the regulations that you're skirting. Perhaps we fine you. So it's in your own best interest not to hire Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema. You won't have a job anywhere. You won't be able to get a job anywhere. I'll run ads in Arizona, Kirsten Cinema that accurately portray you as public enemy number one and the biggest sellout in the entire country. Joe Manchin, I'll do the same goddamn thing for you. How would you like it if ads were running in West Virginia 24-7 calling you corrupt Joe Manchin, pointing out your conflicts of interest, showing everybody how you're not on the side of West Virginians, showing the polls about how our legislation is phenomenally popular and you're standing in the way. How would you like that? But if you do the right thing, you're a hero. I'll leave it up to you. He didn't do any of this. He didn't do it. Not, not only did he not do any of this, he won't even say the Republicans are the bad guys. He gave a speech and then went to Mitch McConnell
1: groveling. And by the way, Mitch McConnell wasn't even in his office when Biden went to go meet with him, and so we didn't even get to tell him. But the whole point of Biden going was to say, I hope you're not mad at me. I was just trying to say that maybe we could probably get my thing done if people would do the right thing, but I don't think you're like the segregationist. Joe Biden is giving up in real time. And the final point
0: is, oh, eh, I'm so ineffective, woe is me, I don't know if this will work. Break out your executive order, pen, you colossal cuck. Nobody has ever been a, more, a bigger mega cuck than Joe Biden in this instance. You can legalize marijuana today. You're the head of the executive branch. We have the drug uh, scheduling and categorization from the DEA, from an executive agency. You have the complete authority to say, Marijuana, Schedule 1, now Schedule 4, Schedule 5, where we took it off the list completely. It's effectively decriminalized or legalized. I decided to do that. Why? It's like a 70% issue in the country, and everybody agrees this is what we should do. So there you go. Done. Whole new industry created overnight throughout the entire country, not just in the however many states have now legalized it. Now the entire country, we have a new industry, which is job creation, which is more tax revenue, which is all this fun stuff. He's not doing it. He's not doing it. He could eliminate student loan debt right now. He could do free college by doing an executive order that says we're eliminating current student loan debt and we're doing rolling student loan debt elimination. So anytime anybody takes a loan out, it's immediately null and void. It's paid for by the federal government through our tax dollars. Well, that would be free college. You could do it right now. Again, these are things that are not only good policy, it's good politics. So you don't get a routing in the midterms that is worse than the worst routing the Democrats has ever gotten, which is, by the way... What we're on path to see, the Republican Party, the the hardcore Trump base, they are now almost officially in a cult. And you're going to get beaten by almost a literal cult? You're not strong enough at governing and getting an agenda through? You can't even beat a cult. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. And by the way, I'm just getting started. Those two executive orders are the easy ones. David Dayen wrote this fantastic article that, that runs through everything that Biden can legally do through executive order, and it's a lot. It's a lot. He really could, if he wanted to, do universal health care through executive order. We already have the authority delegated under Obamacare that in time of, times of emergency, the federal government can pick up the tab for anybody's health care.
1: At the very least, you could do it just for COVID treatment,
0: right? Nothing. No,
1: I don't know if I can get it done. But what I want to know is where's my stapler. And I hope you're not mad at me when I try to get things done for the American people. But I'm going. I'm going. If it doesn't work now, we'll try again. When? When are you going to try again? When are you going to have a better opportunity?
0: In the midterms, the Republicans win, so the Democrats get wiped out. You know, you lose the Senate, you lose the House. You're a total lame duck president. When? When are you going to take a crack at it? 2042? What are you talking about? It's now or never, for the love of God, get to work. But everything I'm saying presupposes that his heart is in the right place, and his heart is not in the right place. He is a neoliberal corporatist. That's what he is. He is a republican light Democrat. So he's taking optics losses everywhere, but this is how he planned on governing all along, because he also wants to serve his donors, and the donors don't want a big, bold leftist agenda to get through, which is really the agenda of the American people when you look at the polls. So uh, Joe, Joe Biden, man, he's flirting with being the biggest cuck in modern American history if he's not already there. This is the saddest thing I've ever seen, man. It is absolutely pathetic. There's no fight in this guy. His tepid speech wasn't even direct, wasn't nearly pointed enough. And by the way, this is the one issue that you're going to go to the math for? The one issue the one. And look, the poll show, this isn't me talking, this is the actual polls, the poll show, even though this issue is important, not downplaying it at all. There are other issues that are even more important according to the people. And you didn't even try your tepid fight on the other things. Bernie Sanders said it best. Take out individual bills through regular order, $15 minimum wage. Make people vote against it. Make the Republicans vote against it. Use it as ammunition. We're in the middle of a two-year raging pandemic. You can't propose through regular order a paid sick leave law for us to catch up to the rest of the world. Propose it Do a full court press. Have everybody go on the talk shows. You give another speech that's actually direct and pointed to anybody who's against this. And then if slash when it fails, you go out there and you say, look, the dividing lines are clear. You saw who voted for you to get paid sick leave, and you saw who didn't. So if you want to actually get this through, you know what to do. Everybody who just voted against it, time to replace them, and time to replace them with somebody who will actually do the right thing. There's no, order, there's no order here. There's no leadership. There's no structure. There's no path. He's a lost puppy dog. Homeboy's damn near 100 years old, and he still doesn't know what he's doing in politics. He's been in Washington, D.C. since Van Buren. He still doesn't know basic politics. We warned you a thousand times, and don't you dare come blaming the left when Democrats get schlanked, okay? Don't you dare. Because the left had the solutions all along. The left were the ones saying, you better get this agenda passed. You better have the fight in you to do it. And then you'd be popular. When was Biden his most popular? When he, gave, he cut a check to people. Now, they lied and said it was 2,000. It was 1,400. But even then, people said, hey, 1,400 is better than nothing. Thank you, Mr. President and his approval rating was over 50%. Now he's sitting around twiddling his thumbs and doing nothing, and his approval rating has tanked to a historic low. Do the fucking math. Don't listen to your idiot staffers who say, oh, you've gone too far left, sir. You've got to be more centrist, sir. That'll be the way that you get Americans back on your side. This is the movie Groundhog Day, and we are waking up with the same nightmare over and over. It's incredible. It's incredible.
1: I don't know if we can get this through, but maybe we'll try and then maybe try again and maybe I'll keep losing and then maybe Democrats will be wiped out from coast to coast. Thank you.
0: Thank you for your service, Mr. President. Okay.
1: All right. Hillary
0: Clinton Hillary Clinton uh, did something that is just mind-boggling here, just absolutely astonishing. This woman has zero self-perception abilities. It's really, it's record-breaking. So take a look at what she said. She tweeted, MLK Jr. said, I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice. And that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. This is a subtweet. Now, my guess is, in her mind, she was going after Manchin and Cinema for being the, quote, white moderate. That's what I think was going on in her mind. Because she thinks, oh, Biden's pushing for voting rights and Manchin and Cinema are standing in the way, along with the Republicans. Uh, But to say, oh, it's the white moderate who's the problem, I think in her mind... She's going after Mansion at cinema. Now, there's a number of ways to respond to this. One of them is, are we really sure how Hillary Clinton would have voted if she was in their shoes? Because every time a consequential decision came up in her entire career, she voted the wrong way. The Iraq War, the Patriot Act, so called free trade deals that outsourced good, decent paying American jobs. So I'm not even sure Hillary Clinton If the political situation were different and she was in power, I'm not even sure she would vote the right way. Now, maybe she would because you have 97% of Democrats on the uh, proper side of this. But the idea that Hillary Clinton, of all people, calls out the white moderate using MLK's words. Hillary, you are what MLK referred to. You are the so-called white moderate. In 1967, MLK spoke out against the war in Vietnam and called the U.S., quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. The greatest purveyor of violence in the world. At the same time, Hillary Clinton admitted that she, quote, stayed up all night to talk students out of protesting the Vietnam War. Now, you can say, Kyle, that's not fair. You have to go all the way back to make that comparison. It makes no sense. No, that makes perfect sense, because if Martin Luther King was alive during the Iraq War, he would have been a voice of moral clarity, saying, don't do this war. And Hillary Clinton voted for that war and defended it way too long. And there are emails where her and her staffers were talking about profiting off of said war. You are exactly what he's referring to. The super predator line, everybody knows about this. This was a huge deal in 2016. When she ran, she said, and I quote, they are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids who are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. And she goes on to say, we need to bring them to heal. This is at the same time we have this hysteria in the country, this tough on crime ideology, which Joe Biden ushered in as well. And this is where we got the the crime bill from. You know, you had the war on drugs, and these are the people that continued it and perpetuated it. And the whole idea was to lock up people, even nonviolent offenders, so people who aren't really criminals, because they're not hurting anybody. These guys pretended they were criminals, and if you're caught with marijuana or drugs, if you're selling drugs or if you're buying drugs, if you're in a desperate situation because of the socioeconomic conditions and you're doing the only thing you can to survive, they said, Don't pass go. Go to prison right now. It's over. It's done. Lock them up. Lock them up. This is Hillary Clinton. This is the exact kind of stuff that Martin Luther King opposed. Because the white moderate, in his mind, had more of a commitment to order than to justice. Hillary Clinton has more of a commitment to order than to justice. And, by the way, so one of the things that people don't realize about Martin Luther King... Is, and by the way, this is on Martin Luther King Day that we're talking about this here. Uh, there was a Harris poll that was conducted after Martin Luther King's speech on Vietnam, and they found that only 25% of even African Americans supported him when he went full anti-war, and there was only a 9% agreement in the country with his objections to the war. So this is a guy who took a moral stand when it was very difficult. To take a moral stand in the midst of the war fervor in the country he said no this makes no sense this is imperialism violence on landless peasants and i'm not okay with it and i'm going to use my my clout and my position in society to speak out against it fundamentally the opposite of hillary clinton Uh, in 1966 mlk said quote there must be a better distribution of wealth and maybe america must move towards a democratic socialism Call it what you may, call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all of God's children. Hillary Clinton is the person who went after Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders embodied that exact philosophy. She was against it. Hillary Clinton, we just covered the story not too long ago, she was just blaming the left for potential future corporate democratic losses. She was just blaming the left. Is that what Martin Luther King would have done? No. Hillary is embodying the white moderate in that instance. But I I saved the biggest banger for the last point here. You guys are going to love this. You guys are going to love this. Some of you know about this. Some of you don't. Hillary Clinton, in one of her books, wrote about how when Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas, and she was with him in the governor's mansion. You know one of the things they had with them in the Arkansas governor's mansion?
1: Slaves. She wrote about it. She wrote about how, well, what they did was they took people who had committed crimes, even violent crimes, who were locked up in the penitentiary, and they used those people to be our help at the governor's mansion. And sure, I was scared when I first saw them. I didn't know. They're violent. What are they capable of? This is not good. But then we got used to having them, and they were wonderful.
0: She had slaves in the Arkansas Governor mansion, and she's quoting Martin Luther King. Going after the white moderate. Now, was it not possible for Bill Clinton to say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, I don't want. I don't want this to happen. I'm going to sign an order saying, let's not use slaves in the governor's mansion. Could have done it. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. So she is a status quo defender through and through. She's not a forward thinker. She doesn't have moral clarity or ethics. Whatever situation she's dropped in, she does the politically convenient thing and takes the easy way out. Oh, I have slaves in Arkansas? I guess this is just how it works. (laughs) Tee-hee-hee. Oh, they're building up to a war based on lies, and they're trying to attack somebody who did not attack us and overthrow a government that had nothing to do with 9-11? Well, everybody else is going along with it, so I guess I'll go along with it. (laughs) Tee-hee-hee. Oh, the year is... 2021, and uh, people are blaming the left for corporate Democratic failures, I guess I'll jump in and join that, <laughs> Every single Democrat who ran on Medicare for All won re-election. So does Hillary Clinton say, well, we need to, we need to advocate for Medicare for All? Look, I was wrong on it. Bernie was right. we got to advocate for it. It's clearly a political winner. Nope. She has a commitment neoliberalism and corporatism and moderation so as she goes after the white moderate she should look in the mirror because the person that king was really talking about was her nobody has done nobody has embodied that archetype more than the clintons bill and hillary so she's got some nerve man zero self perception ability it is absolutely astounding Lord help us if she runs again, which she very well might. Lord help us. She's being more visible now, and there's more and more articles talking about it and speculating. Oh. In the 2016 campaign, I aged 10 years, and I will now age 30 in one election cycle if she happens to run again and if Trump happens to run again, which is looking more and more likely by the day.
1: Okay. All right,
0: let me do one more, and then I'll take a break. One more, baby. Actually, you know what? Let me take the break right now. Oh, no, not again. Oh, no, my computer's acting up. I hate this. fuck why is everything so difficult all right guys stay right there we'll be right back we are back, y'all. I am back with a fidgety computer, but I will do my absolute best, as per usual, to try to keep the show going. All right, let's talk about Trump. So Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are taking shots at each other. Um, It all started, well, Apparently, there's a backstory um, from when Trump was president. Him and DeSantis butted heads on certain things. And so ever since then, Trump was sort of like, I don't know if I like this guy, because you know Trump demands almost complete and total loyalty from anybody who's um, around him. And DeSantis is the Republican governor of Florida, and there were some, some sort of policy disagreements uh, where DeSantis didn't want to go along. Well, since then, polls have been very clear. DeSantis is the biggest challenger to Trump. Now Trump is still the big dog in the Republican Party by a mile, but the closest one to him is Ron DeSantis. And Trump feels to some extent threatened by Ron DeSantis. You know, he's insecure. He doesn't know if he runs and DeSantis runs. Maybe DeSantis does sort of, uh, you know, find a way to capture the imagination and the heart of the Republican base more so than Trump. Because Trump, even though he has a cult-like following, you know, it's got, it has gotten less and less. uh, And maybe now we're at, 50% of the Republican uh, base, the Republican Party, um, 30%-ish of the country. And so in theory, he can be beaten. Now, but it is kind of weird because the more other people attack Trump, the stronger Trump gets. So DeSantis would have to really walk a tightrope in order to to defeat Trump. But either way, I think Trump feels threatened. That's the main point here. And um, so Trump has been taking shots behind the scenes, and he took some shots in front of the scenes. Uh, there was the issue of getting the booster shot where DeSantis was asked and he didn't give a direct answer. He danced around the question because DeSantis knows that a lot of the people on the Republican base are um, vaccine hesitant or at the very least anti-mandate. And Trump has been leaning into the fact that, you know, he got the booster and, hey, I created the vaccine, so you got to give me credit for this. Don't let them take this from you. Well, Trump recently called DeSantis, he didn't say DeSantis' name, but he said in an interview, not only did I get the booster, there are all these gutless politicians out there who won't answer if they did. Say it. If you did get it, say it. If you didn't get it, say it. Just say it. But don't be gutless. And that was a veiled shot at DeSantis. Well, now DeSantis in some ways has fired back. Let's take a look at what's going on in Axios here. They say, Donald Trump is trashing Ron DeSantis in private as an ingrate with a, quote, dull personality and no realistic chance of beating him in a potential 2024 showdown, according to sources who've recently talked to the former president about the Florida governor. The two are among the most popular Republicans in the country, and as the former president eyes another run in 2024, he's irked by DeSantis' popularity and refusal to rule out running against him. Hmm. DeSantis is a favorite of Republican voters when pollsters remove Trump from the hypothetical 2024 field. The governor also hasn't been beyond tweaking his fellow Floridian, DeSantis on the Ruthless podcast recorded Thursday says one of his biggest regrets in office was not speaking out much louder in March 2020 when Trump advised the American public to stay home to slow the spread of the coronavirus. In, In the context of the 2024 election, he usually gives DeSantis a pop in the nose in the middle of that type of conversation, said a source who recently spoke to Trump about DeSantis. The source, who shared the private remarks on the condition of anonymity has heard Trump criticize DeSantis on multiple occasions. The source said Trump makes a point of saying he isn't worried about the Florida governor as a potential 2024 rival. He says DeSantis has no personal charisma and has a dull personality, the source added. A spokesman for Trump did not comment when presented with this reporting. So we're right back in the time machine, y'all. 2015, 2016, it's the beginning of uh, the campaign. Donald Trump pops in. And he's shooting in every which direction when he's on that debate stage. He's taken down Rand Paul. He's taken down Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and Chris Christie and Ben Carson. And, he's, and the most entertaining and interesting part of Trump was the way he would viciously destroy the other Republicans. That was the very best part of Trump. And every now and then he'd stumble on something that was true. You know, when uh, Jeb Bush talked about, my brother kept us safe, and uh, Trump said... The towers came down under your brother on 9-11. He did not keep us safe. You don't get a mulligan on that. And that was in front of a South Carolina audience, big military state, and the audience was behind Trump. So if Trump can call out George W. Bush and his failure on 9-11 in front of a military right-wing audience, it was at that point that we knew, this is a rap dog. I mean, Trump is probably going to win the whole thing. And that's exactly what happened. I remember Trump's back and forth with Rand Paul when Rand Paul was like, you know, this is like high school stuff, and Trump will go after people for their looks, and that's so silly. Did we not grow out of this after junior high school? Like, what are we talking about here? And Trump said, "Uh, hold on, I've never gone after your looks, and believe me, there's plenty of content matter right there, (laughs) plenty of subject matter right there. Uh, It was glorious. I mean, best part of Trump by far. So we're right back there. We're right back there. And apparently dull DeSantis is what he's thinking for Ron DeSantis. He is kind of right that uh, he's dull, that Ron DeSantis is dull. And actually, I do think it's, it is political cowardice, I think, for him not to be like, yeah, I got the booster. Or to say, no, I didn't get the booster. He's, he's trying to play hide the ball with it. And there's nothing that I despise more than people playing hide the ball with that shit, with anything be honest, whatever it is. Okay, you didn't get it? Great. Say you didn't get it. Say why you didn't get it, and let's move on. And let the media write a thousand articles on it, but it is what it is. You spoke the truth. And I think Trump is right to lean into saying, I got the vaccine, the vaccine and the booster. You should get the booster. It's a good thing. The people who are largely uh, very sick and dying are people who are not vaccinated. That's a positive thing. And um, so now you're getting all, there's this talk online now where people are saying, listen, Maybe DeSantis can beat Trump. And I'll say this. It is possible, but it's a very slim chance. I give it like 80-20 that Trump would win that. Um, And I don't think on this particular issue that DeSantis is the one who's with the majority. I just don't. You know, when you have 80% of the country has had at least one shot and Trump is on the side of the people who are getting the vaccine, you might be appeasing the most rabid base, but... When you're DeSantis and you say, you know, you dance around whether or not you got the booster, but it's not strong when you do that. There's no strength there. You're not actually giving an answer. And you're pandering to the fringe. I mean, definitionally, you're pandering to the fringe. And I think Trump is on strong enough ground with the Republican base when he says he's very firmly anti-mandate while being pro you getting the vaccine. And I think the anti-mandate thing is enough to – Get the support of the base. Only for people like Alex Jones is it not enough, and Alex Jones is Alex Jones. And that says everything that you need to say about Alex Jones. So it's heating up, man. 2024 stuff is already starting. Listen, there will be some people who run against Trump. If Trump runs, which is very likely, there will be some people who run against him. Um, And it'll be interesting just how badly Trump curb stomps most of them, if not all of them. And so, I'm watching. I'm watching. I hope that this feud heats up even more, and I hope that for once we find somebody who does not cuck themselves to Trump. Just for the sheer entertainment value, I want to see that. You know, Ted Cruz was pretending to stand up against Trump and ultimately cucked himself a thousand times over. Remember that when Trump was, uh, retweeted something that said, I wouldn't even spill the beans on Heidi Cruz? Which is like, hey bro, I wouldn't even fuck your wife, dog. What? You're running for president. What are you doing? Called, said that Ted Cruz's dad may have killed JFK. What? And at the end of it all, Ted Cruz was sitting there phone banking for Trump with his little cuck Ted Cruz face on, like me,
3: me.
0: Let's see if the and Trump. If this becomes a real feud, I'd love to see somebody not cuck themselves to Trump on the right, which is as rare as an albatross at the moment.
4: All right, next.
1: Let's. Go to
0: one Bernard Sanders. Bernie Sanders went on Seth Meyers' show here, and um, he, I think this back and forth is just perfect. It's, It's pure class consciousness and solidarity, and this is exactly what's needed in today's day and age in order to fix the plethora of problems that we have laid out in front of us. Let's take a look, and then I'm going to react. You are at these strikes, particularly when they're in red uh, red states, like Alabama you mentioned. Are you uh, cognizant of, or or do you
5: feel it's true that maybe a lot of the people that you are there uh, fighting for are not uh, Bernie Sanders supporters or even Democratic voters? Well, that's an
2: interesting question. Uh, I happen to believe that if you make it clear to working people, whether you're in Alabama, California, or any place else, that you are prepared to stand up and fight for their interests. that you have the guts to tell the pharmaceutical industry you're not going to charge us ten times more for a drug than they do in Canada, that you're going to fight for health care for all as a human, right, that you're going to create jobs which pay at least $15 an hour, minimum wage that we need. See, I happen to believe that the Republican success in these red states among working people is not anything that they have done per se. It's not that in red states people believe in tax breaks for billionaires or throwing millions of people off of health insurance or that people in red states want to do as Mitch McConnell does, cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I think the reason those states have gone red is that people looking at the Democratic Party and say, we don't believe you, we don't trust you, you're really not fighting for us. And then there are reasons why they, they go toward the Republicans. So when I go to those states and I say, you know what, you're entitled to decent wages and decent benefits, that health care is a human right, that your kids have a right to go to college, that you shouldn't be ripped off by the pharmaceutical industry, People nod their heads and they say, "Yeah, you're right, Bernie. No difference in those states than in any you know, Vermont or any other state."
0: That's exactly right. I mean, this is what solidarity is all about, and this is what we need to dig ourselves out of this hole that we're currently in. It's going to take class consciousness. It's going to take solidarity. When somebody joins a union, they don't have to—they don't have to answer questions like, "Well, what's your take on abortion?" or uh, "Who'd you vote for in the last election?" Or any of, all of that stuff gets put to the side, and a higher value of standing together against the owner class is the dominant value. And that's the only way that people at the bottom win, is if you collectively bargain. If you stand in solidarity with your fellow brothers and sisters, and you realize that united, we have a chance. Divided, we definitely fall. This is why the oldest trick in the book of the elites is divide and conquer. So let everybody uh, want to split each other's throats over culture war stuff. You know, uh, let's scapegoat and blame uh, black people, scapegoat and blame immigrants. You know, point the finger at people who have uh, no wealth and no power and say that, They're the problem, so you guys fight amongst yourselves. Take uh, social issues like issues involving religion, and you guys fight amongst yourselves over that, and we're going to run out the back door with all the money, the top 1%, the ruling class, the billionaires. And Bernie is trying to break through and let people know the only way we can actually win is if we realize we have way more in common than not. And this is the exact message, man. Listen, the problem is the elites. The problem is that Republican politicians are totally bought and owned by corporate America and they're doing their bidding. And the Democrats are also bought and owned by corporate America and they're doing their bidding. Now, there are there are differences. You know, they're not the parties aren't exactly the same. But for damn sure, the parties are both nowhere near good enough and nowhere near looking out For your average American. That's just a fact. So you could argue over just how corrupt they are and who exactly are the particular donors that lead to both parties acting as they act. But the fact of the matter is, everybody has a gut feeling. There's this intuition that virtually everybody in the country has that nobody's representing me. This is why Congress has an approval rating that oscillates between like 7% and 25%. Their approval rating is 25% on a good day. That's a good day. So people are onto it. They know that they're not being represented. And what happens if you stand in solidarity, if you have unity against the top 1% of the working class? um, What happens is you have a fighting chance. And we can prioritize the things that would make all of our lives better. And this is the whole point. So if you stand together with people who maybe on some issues, maybe on many issues you don't agree with, well, maybe you can get a living wage implemented because everybody wants to be able to make uh, enough to live if they work a full-time job, virtually everybody. The only people against that are the people who are bought by corporate American billionaires or people who are totally totally drunk on Ayn Rand unfettered laissez-faire capitalism Kool-Aid, and that's a tiny percentage of the population. So the overwhelming majority of people, because they live this experience, they know, look, I work full-time. Of course I should make enough money to survive. Anybody who works full-time should make enough money to survive. We can come together on an issue like that, on a $15 minimum wage. We can come together on an issue like the PRO Act, which is pro-union legislation, which will put teeth back in the unions, and have way more people join unions. And unions now are polling higher than in my entire lifetime because people understand that the elected officials are so corrupted and not listening to the needs of the people that – the only people coming to save us are us, if we get our act together, and if we stand in solidarity and unity. And so that's how you actually have a chance of winning. And that's how you can collectively bargain and get better benefits, more vacation time, higher pay. This is a, it's a, he's laying out here a very basic idea, but it's an idea that has been buried in modern America. And it's been buried because we have this hyper-partisanship that and, – and this culture war narrative that feeds the partisan and tribal disagreements. Now, look, I have feelings on social issues. I have very strong feelings on social issues. There are many things I think are a no-brainer um, that I fight for and I argue for. And that's all fine and dandy. We can have those discussions and we can have those conversations. But on the areas where we can unify, we absolutely should unify. And if that's on pro-union legislation, if that's on a a $15 minimum wage, if that's on ending the corruption in Washington, D.C. and getting the money out of the political system, then that's wonderful. That's wonderful. If that's eliminating medical debt, doing universal health care, these are all areas where if you look at the polling data, 60, 70, 80% of the American people are on this side. And it would benefit all Americans. And so we can come together and we can wage this fight. And we have a much better chance if we stand united. So this is what solidarity is about, man. This is what class consciousness is about. It's about understanding even though we might have differences in our respective ideologies, um, at the end of the day we come together for the biggest issues that impact all of us. And it's the only way we win. Because, again, divide and conquer is the oldest trick in the book, and that's the exact trick that the elites use on us. You have a lot more in common with Joe Schmo Republican union guy than you have in common with Democratic top 1% elite who's bought by all the big corporations and billionaires and has been taking donations from them for decades. Now, you've been brainwashed into thinking that's not the case, that you know Nancy Pelosi is more with you than average Joe, apolitical, or independent, or Republican union person, but that's a mirage. It's an illusion, and it's an illusion to keep you powerless, to keep you alienated and isolated, to keep you weak and passive. If you're fighting all day about culture war stuff, you're not unifying on economic stuff, and it's much easier for the wealthy and the 1% to win and the elites to win, and You know, Bernie is now – his message is sharper here than it's been in a while. There was a 2016 iteration of Bernie, very powerful iteration of Bernie. 2020, I think he had uh, some more missteps and actually did a worse run in 2020 than he did in 2016. But my guess is now that since he's behind the scenes and he has a leadership position in the Democratic Party, he's looking around and going, holy shit, it's even worse than I thought. This is even worse than I thought. And he said it. He said, listen, it's the failure of the Democratic Party – That's the problem here. People, for the Republicans to get the number of votes that they've been getting, that's not just, oh, I am affirmatively in favor of the Republicans. No, that's also, I just don't believe that the Democrats are actually fighting for me in any way. So it's the pendulum election. Hey, we voted for these people. They're not doing shit for me. Okay, go back this way. Okay, we voted for these people. They're not doing shit for me. Okay, we'll go back this way. Okay, I voted for these people. They're not doing shit for me. So just back forth, back forth, back forth, back forth. But there's not... The number of true ideologically committed Kool-Aid drinking far-right types are nowhere near the number that you've been led to believe. And it's, uh, politics is fluid. It is not stagnant. And there's a reason why, as you guys hear me talk about all the time, FDR won four elections in a row. He won four elections. And when he was president, Democrats held 80% of the House of Representatives, And they held 80 percent of the Senate. Those numbers, political scientist types today will tell you it's not possible in the modern age with how hyperpartisan we are for anybody to get those kinds of numbers. I don't believe them. The reason why we don't see numbers like that is because nobody's actually fighting for you. But if Americans got a taste of a president who actually would fight for them, you would see numbers like that. You would. The American people will reward you if you fight for them. And we just haven't seen anybody fight for them in any serious way in so long. And so I want to change, change the imagination of what's possible and not possible. People are so jaded and cynical and nihilistic, they don't realize that a better world is possible and that it actually is more attainable and the path is more clear-cut than anybody wants to admit. And Bernie here is sort of touching on one of the hard truths of that reality, which is it's not that people are affirmatively pro-Republican, it's just a lot of these people – say, the Democrats haven't done anything for me, and so they swing right. And so if you actually serve people, we can win. And if you actually stand in solidarity and unify on the big issues that affect us all, that's our best way of winning. Labor has a lot more power than people realize. It can ground this country to a halt if they want, if there's a general strike. We've seen a bunch of strikes that have actually succeeded in recent years. This is the first time in a long time that unions are going on the offense, and they're no longer on the defense, and that's a wonderful development. And um, look, I challenge you, go read, this, this video's on YouTube, um, Bernie talking to Seth Meyers, go read the comments. Because there are plenty of people who are just pro-Bernie who are like, this guy's awesome, and then there are plenty of people who are like, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not um, somebody who is inclined to agree with this guy. In fact, I didn't really like him, but as I'm watching this and I'm soaking it in, I realize he's right, and we need more people like him. He's a national treasure. And this is the ideology that gets us through the dark days, so... This is well done. Um, Bernie's now pre- pressuring the Democrats more so than I've ever seen him because he sees everything's falling apart. And he's saying fight or lose. It's that simple. And he's now saying bring up individual bills on specific issues through regular order and apply political pressure and then use this not only to try to get the policy implemented but to play politics the right way to show Americans, hey, we're for $15 minimum wage. Hey, we're for pay sick leave. Hey, we're for um, the child tax credit. That's what Bernie's saying to do. Yes, but I go one step further. He needs to do those executive orders too. He needs to eliminate student loan debt. And he needs to legalize marijuana. A bunch of different things through executive order because he can, and he's just not exercising that power. So, Bernie reached this final form here, and that final form is pure class consciousness. Okay, next, Nina Turner. Nina Turner went on CNN. It's amazing to me that they still have her on because she speaks truth to power regularly, and usually they try to get those people off of air ASAP. Um, She went back and forth with a Joe Manchin staffer. This is something you're going to love.
4: This is really a sad day, a sad time for democracy. And although the African American community certainly shoulders an, an, an enormous burden when it comes to voting rights because of the historic import of how we had to fight and people had to die to get those rights, this is an attack, make no mistake, on every single person in this country, particularly the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class. An absolute sad day that you have senators that would rather hold on to the filibuster than to hold strong for democracy in the United States of America. Sad indeed. Jonathan, what do you think? And yes, we need to pass Voting Rights Act. Senator Manchin and Senator
5: Sinema's positions on the filibuster hasn't changed. They don't think it's good for the Senate and the country overall, and they're worried about what might happen when Republicans take back control of the Senate, which, by the way, isn't that far off. This was. It was only two years ago they had complete control, so they are looking to preserve how the Senate works and how, and force them to work in a bipartisan way. But Senator Manchin completely agrees that we need to reform our voting rights in this country, and he's working on it. And he's working on a bill, and he's hoping that he can get nine more Republicans. But these things aren't easy, and it takes time.
6: Nina, what do you mean by that,
4: that sort of preservation? Made, yes. Preservation, my behind, Brianna. Look, we need to preserve democracy. Now, so I got to disagree with, with my colleague here. They better not utter the not one quote from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Not one or any of his colleagues and contemporaries as we come up on his birthday on Saturday and the national celebration on Monday. This is These people are cowards. They are soulless cowards to hold up a daggone rule. Filibuster is a rule. It's not written in the Constitution. It's not a right. It is a rule, and they're standing in the way of it. So this is nonsense. they worried about what the Republicans are going to do. Let's take care of 2022. Let's do what Democrats can do right now. They have the power. And my message to President Biden, and he done wasted a whole bunch of time with these folks, being diplomatic, inviting them out to, to the White House and to them. Time out for it. He needs to hold a press time. Let them know. Either you're going to be by my side saying you're going to be with me and getting rid of the filibuster, or I'm gassing up the jet. On your behind, and I will be in Arizona and West Virginia directly, and let the American people know who's standing in the way of my entire agenda, not just voting rights. So, President uh, President Biden, gas up the jet and cancel student debt.
1: Amen to
0: that. Amen to that. The filibuster is uh, is absurd. It's absurd. First of all, the Senate, by its very nature, is undemocratic because you, get, you give a disproportionate amount of power to more rural right-wing areas. So Wyoming has two senators. They have a population of about 12 people. And California has two senators, and they have roughly 17 quadrillion people. Okay, so you could argue, hey, that's the way the system works and all that stuff. I mean, in an ideal system, we'd abolish the Senate, and you just have a more representative body, which is the House of Representatives, and, and that would be that. But okay, so we have the Senate. Well, then you have this idea... That 51 votes doesn't beat 49 votes. And they say, well, you need 60 in order to get anything through what's called regular order. Well, why? Well, that's the way that the filibuster works. Yeah, but hold on. The way the filibuster used to work was that if you wanted to block something, you needed to go and give a speech and start talking and never stop so that you – You basically block any movement simply through a speech that never ends. That was a filibuster. That's a filibuster. Oh, we care so much about blocking this that we will start speaking and not stop so that we can block this. And you could take turns and have, you know, however many, a dozen uh, politicians go up there and take turns and and speak for seven hours at a time. And and that would be a filibuster. Um, At some point along the way, they reformed it to say, no, you could just declare we are filibustering. And then the other side needs 60 votes to pass it, whatever it is. Well, that just doesn't make any sense. You're saying that, you know, you need this supermajority to pass anything. Well, guess what? It turns out there's always been exceptions to the filibuster. There's something like over 100 different – I'm forgetting the exact number, so don't quote me on this – but like 141 or 144 different exceptions to the filibuster where, oh, you only need a simple majority to get this through or that through. Um, and so – and then there's also one other process, budget reconciliation, where certain things, you only need uh, 51 votes to get through. There's all these different categories of loopholes around it because the rule is absurd. Now, this idea that people are per- pearl-clutching and saying, oh, my God, this is – how dare we change this institution and this is part of the Constitution? It's not. It's not. And Mitch McConnell now – who's arguing, well, don't you dare, because then we'll retaliate. They got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations, and it was a simple majority you get somebody on the Supreme Court now. They went nuclear on the filibuster on that particular issue. So now you have the Democrats, you have Joe Biden, so weak and ineffectual and pathetic, um, he was trying to get Manchin and Cinema to change their minds, but he gave a speech that wasn't pointed or targeted at anybody, And then Cinema goes and gives a speech and says, I'm not in favor of changing the filibuster. And Manchin's like, I'm not in favor of changing or reforming it at all. So because Joe Biden doesn't know how to fight and doesn't know how to exert political power, doesn't know how to twist arms, doesn't know how to play the coward or stick game, doesn't know how to act like a mafia boss to get his way, we're stuck and we're going nowhere. The only stuff Biden can do right now is executive orders. And he doesn't even do that. He doesn't even want to do that. And there's plenty of things he can do through executive order that are perfectly constitutional, and he's not even doing that. So he's not doing executive orders, which is the easiest thing he could do. He's not fighting against Mansion and Cinema in a way that even has a small chance of working. And so here we are. And then you get this bullshit line from a Mansion staffer. Oh, we definitely need voting rights, but we need to get voting rights without reforming the filibuster because it's an important part of our institutions. It's certainly not. It's a stupid rule. At the very least, we should go back to the original filibuster. But if you wanted a more Democratic body, you would just abolish the filibuster. But they are standing in the way of progress, and you can't help but think about that rotating villain theory. This notion that if it wasn't Manchin and Cinema, it'd be Warner and somebody else. And that they just rotate who's to blame, who's the bad guy, who plays the heel, and then nothing changes. Funny, whenever the Republicans want something, they get it done. They, remember what happened? They did George W. Bush's tax cuts for the wealthy, through reconciliation. Now, um, you had the Senate parliamentarian at the time say, you can't do that through budget reconciliation. So what did the Republicans do? Fired that parliamentarian and brought in somebody who said, who said, okay, you can do it. When the
1: Democrats get told by the parliamentarian you can't do that or that, they go, okay, I'm sorry. Can I please have my stapler back? So when they want something done, they get it done. They get it done.
0: When We want voting rights, and you can't, you can't even get that through? Voting rights. Voting rights. I mean, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. These things are no-brainers. Okay, hold on. Let me tell you what is in the bill that apparently uh, the Democrats are totally incapable of getting through or even fighting to get through or twisting arms or anything. So it makes Election Day a holiday. It's the Freedom to Vote Act. It makes Election Day a holiday. Ends gerrymandering. Uh, combats anti-voting laws. Uh, Working their way through state legislatures, where all these red states are trying to make it harder for poor people and people of color to vote. Requires states to allow 15 days of early voting. Uh, Massively spans voter access through automatic voter registration and election day registration. Again, these are no-brainers. Increases election security by creating a national standard for voter-verified paper ballots. Implements a national voter ID standard with reasonable alternatives like utility bills or bank statements. Requires voting machines be made in the United States, protects nonpartisan election officials from partisan interference, shines a light on dark money, makes it harder for billionaires and special interests to buy elections. So more transparency. That's not anywhere near strong enough. But look, a lot of the things in this legislation are great. None of it's going to get through. And Biden's laying down in a chalk outline of himself, and we're all getting gaslit by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and Nina Turner was running circles around this guy. They don't have a real argument. They don't. These are fundamentally conservative and reactionary forces who are against even these basic changes in the right direction. That's who Joe Manchin is. That's who his staffer is. That's who Kirsten Sinema is. And, again, you can't even... Not only can they not reform the filibuster, back to the original filibuster, or abolish it, they also apparently are incapable of just coming up with uh, an expansion of the reconciliation process. You only get like two or three cracks at it um, under the current system. You could just say, no, nope, we're getting rid of that. Now you get 10 cracks at it. That's what, they could pass a law that says that and it'd be fine. They're not even doing that. They're not even doing that. Incredible. Joe Biden is going down as one of the least – effectual presidents in modern American history, and that's kind, just saying modern American history, maybe in history. This is a failure. It's a failure on top of a failure within a failure, and um, Nina Turner speaking truth to power on CNN, and yet again, I'm surprised they still allow her on, because usually they're hostile to people who are telling the truth in an aggressive way. Okay. Okay, next. So Joe Biden's approval rating um, is now even lower than it was before. We were, we talked about it when it was thirty-eight percent. Now take a look at this. Quinnipiac poll shows Biden with thirty-three percent approval rating. Thirty. 3%. Now in a CBS poll, words like frustrated and disappointed top people's descriptions of his presidency, along with the feeling that he's distracted and not focusing on what they care about. Biden presidency has made you feel 50% frustrated, 49 disappointed, 40 nervous, 25 calm, 25 satisfied. Look how low the positive words are, look how high the negative words are. The negative words are double that of the positive words um, now let me give you some more from the CBS poll or excuse me the Quinnipiac poll 33% is his approval rating as we said on the economy his approval rating is 34% foreign policy 35% 39% this is now legendary and record-breaking how low his numbers are. By the way, on foreign policy, this this is an interesting fact. Even when the media was shitting on him relentlessly over Afghanistan, his numbers on Afghanistan were the highest of any of the different specific issues because people saw, okay, you're ending this really long war. We probably shouldn't have been in this war in the first place. And even if it's a little messy, it's good that you're ending the war. And so we had high marks on Afghanistan, even with the media doing propaganda. Now it's down to 35% approval rating on foreign policy. Why? I think it's because now we're getting news stories about how we are literally starving millions of people in Afghanistan to death. Women and children. There's malnutrition. There's straight-up famine. We are sanctioning them. We are not allowing Afghanistan to have their own money. And as a result of that, people are dying and are getting sick. And so, in a way, what he's doing now is even more brutal and ruthless and bloodthirsty than the war itself, and boom. Then on foreign policy, his numbers tanked, tanked. I mean, this is, you want to know how bad this is here? I actually have some specifics for you on how bad this is. This is crazy. So it, this is Biden's lowest approval rating, 33%, okay? What was Trump's lowest ever approval rating? 34%. So Biden's approval is now lower than Trump's lowest was. And by the way, Trump's lowest, I believe, was just after January 6th. It was January uh, 15th of the same year that he had his lowest single approval rating. Now, by the way, on the average, Biden's at like 41%, but this one Quinnipiac poll has him at 33%. So his lowest individual poll is lower than Trump's lowest individual poll, even after January 6th when Trump was clearly talking out of both sides of his mouth and on the one hand trying to Get people to storm the Capitol. Think about that. Think about how terrible you have to be to get to that point. Another comparison. What was Barack Obama's lowest number ever? 40%. Biden is seven points lower than Barack Obama's lowest poll. Seven points lower than Barack Obama's lowest poll. Bill Clinton's lowest poll number, 37%. Biden's lower than that. Um, the only people who were lower than Biden at some point, George W. Bush, 25% approval rating was his lowest. And, uh, George H.W. Bush in the modern era, 29%. So only the Bushes are less popular than Joe Biden. This is what happens when you don't do anything with your power, your considerable power. This is what happens. The last time Biden really did something for anybody was those $1,400 checks. And at the time when he cut those checks, his approval rating was through the roof. It was over 50%. It was 57%, in fact. $1,400 checks. You gave people a check. They liked you. You sat on your ass and did nothing. No executive orders. No fighting to get Build Back Better through in a way that could actually work. Pandemic is raging across the country. You have no answers As to how to fix it, you didn't invoke the Defense Production Act to increase the production of monoclonal antibodies or remdesivir or other treatments. You earned it. You earned this 33%. And the entire ship is going to sink on the back of Joe Biden. And guess what? All of his staffers and everybody in Washington, D.C. is whispering in his ear, the reason why your approval is so low is because you went too far left. (laughs) Apparently, it's a left-wing position to sit on your ass cheeks and do nothing. They think that's left. No, left would be if he's cranking out the executive orders every single day. Legalize marijuana, abolish student loan debt, free every single nonviolent drug offender, pardons and commutations, free Julian Assange, uh, free Edward Snowden, allow him back in the country. That would be a left-wing presidency. Threaten to prosecute Manchin's daughter for the multiple crimes she committed and the price-fixing when it comes to pharma. And then use that leverage to force Joe Manchin to vote for parts of your agenda. That's what you would do. Not doing any of it. 33%. Going to be a bloodbath in the midterms, man. We warned you. We have the answers. They didn't listen, and they're going to get what's coming to them. Okay. Okay. All right, let's move on. Oh, this is fun, fun. So the other day we had Thomas Friedman, the New York Times writer, who said, "Biden and Liz Cheney 2024 just complete moron." I mean, the conventional wisdom pumped up with steroids and human growth hormone to make it the worst possible version of conventional wisdom. This guy is so deep in the elites' bubble, he can't see straight. That ticket would lose in a stunning fashion. Almost any Republican ticket would beat that ticket. Because Biden, the Democratic base doesn't like Joe Biden. He's not doing anything with his considerable power. And only like elite liberals and corporate Democrats like Liz Cheney. And you're not going to get any crossover Republican voters to vote for Liz Cheney. They hate Liz Cheney. They view her as a traitor because she's critical of Trump. So this is a, like, you have like a 20% block in the country at best that would vote for this ticket. It is just the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And by the way, he says, we need to copy Israel by doing such a coalition. That wonderful democracy of Israel. He literally says, to save our democracy, we need to copy Israel. (laughs) You mean the apartheid state? Copy the theocratic apartheid state in order to be more democratic. What? But see, listen, the reason why this is an idea that he can even float is because it is technically true. There's not much difference policy-wise between Democrats and Republicans. Like the elites in both parties, the corporatists in both parties, they agree on way too much stuff. And so there isn't even that much difference uh, in the mindset between them, but it's hardcore partisanship. Uh, that would make people turn against this. And also, again, you can't run a Democratic ticket that has lost the entire Democratic base. Politics 101 is don't lose your base, and Thomas Friedman's advice is lose your base immediately. So we got that from New York Times idiots. Well, now look at the new one from the equally stupid David Brooks. Today is the day for Biden to begin revamping his presidency in a more centrist direction. There's no path forward for a leftish agenda. David Brooks thinks Joe Biden has been governing from the left. That's what David Brooks thinks. How can you possibly believe that? How can you possibly believe that? Build Back Better was $6 trillion. Then it was $3.5 trillion. Then it was $2.1 trillion. Then it was $1.8 trillion. Then the Biden administration said to Joe Manchin, hey, dog, make whatever bill you want to make and we'll get it through. So you, the ultimate blue dog Democrat, Republican white Democrat, right-wing Democrat, corporate centrist Democrat, you just write the legislation and we'll try to get it through. Whatever you want in the bill, put it in the bill. That is the most centrist thing you could do. And... Still, we couldn't get anything done on that front. Nothing. On what planet do you think Biden's on the left? What would a left-wing president have done? You guys know this. I say it all the time. Number one, you'd be cranking out the executive orders like nobody's business. We'd already have legal marijuana. we already have all the nonviolent drug offenders freed in the country. You would have given at least everybody who suffered through COVID free health care, through our current existing laws, under Obamacare during an emergency, you can give people free healthcare. We would have done that. We would have abolished student loan debt. We would have done rolling student loan debt elimination through executive order so that we effectively have free college in this country. There's a million free Julian Assange, free Edward Snowden. There's a million things an actual left president would have done. You would have used a leverage on Manchin and Cinema, made them public enemy number 1 unless they do the right thing on bill back better. He didn't do any of this stuff. He didn't do any of this stuff. He did exactly what the centrists want of let Manchin run the show, let Cinema run the show. I'll let them decide everything. I don't care. And what happened? His approval rating is 33%. You guys are in control. The centrists and the corporatists are the dominant faction of the House of Representatives, the Democrats in the House of Representatives, and the Democrats in the Senate, and the President. You guys have your governing philosophy on display right now for everybody to see, and everybody hates it. Biden's approval rating is 33%. That's lower than Trump's lowest approval rating. Trump's lowest approval rating was 34%. Own your failures. Own it. Own it. Joe Biden is Joe Biden. He's not Bernie Sanders. He's not FDR. He's not LBJ. Nancy Pelosi is Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi isn't Marianne Williamson governing in there from the left. If we had Bernie Sanders and if we had Marianne Williamson, the approval rating wouldn't be 33%. It'd be way higher than 33%. percent be over 50%. People would like the fact that the government is actually working for them and doing the things that the people want. He said it's time for Biden to go in a centrist direction. How could he get more centrist? That's a genuine question. How could he get more centrist? If you're already saying, hey, look, we're not doing anything, we're not getting anything through at all, and I'm letting Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema run the show, how do you get more centrist than that, David Brooks? Notice he didn't give any specifics in his argument here. There's no specifics, because how can you give specifics? Biden is the epitome of a centrist Democrat. He's quintessential centrist Democrat. Oh my God! This guy has Jello brains, bro. There's nothing going on up there, and it, he decided to tweet this on the same day that uh, Biden was talking about voting rights and trying to get at least an exemption in the filibuster just on voting rights, and he couldn't even get that done. But he says, "Oh, this is a leftist agenda." Is it really to make Election Day a holiday to end gerrymandering? to require states to allow 15 days of early voting. This is just basic pro-democracy stuff. Automatic voter registration. Basic pro-democracy stuff. That's it. That's all this is. That's a leftist thing, and he needs to be more centrist, even though he's being as centrist as, humanly, as anybody can possibly be, as humanly possible right now. See? Okay. He gets paid to talk about politics and write about politics, this guy. He gets paid to do that. Whether it was Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, or Joe Biden, this is the same neoliberal, new Democrat ideology. This corporatism, this coloring within the lines, playing within the system, this anti-social democratic agenda. That's everything about this philosophy and this ideology and this governing strategy. And he refuses to own it. In fact, they turn around and blame the left. You've already tried the left-wing thing, so now you've got to be further right. Does he just want Joe Biden to fully be like Donald Trump, try to pass another tax cut for the rich or something like that? Is that what you want? And then he would call that reasonable, intelligent governance? I can't believe he gets paid to write politics. Him, Thomas Friedman, between the two of them, they have the IQ of a dead ferret. They have zero political analysis skills. And by the way, the good news is the responses to his tweet um, really show he's exactly as out of touch as we all know that he is. I mean, people really went in in the responses. They went in. But no matter what, I forgot the question, but the answer is blame the left doesn't get any more absurd, and doesn't get any more unempirical than what he's saying here. Okay, let's continue. Let's continue, Joanne read time. Joanne Reed um, talked on her show about potential policy actions that can be done to go after unvaccinated people. Let's take a look, and then I'll respond.
3: Let's talk about what other
6: countries are doing. Because at some point, I feel like people who are willfully unvaccinated, fine, don't get vaccinated. But they need to start to pay a little bit more of the cost of what this is doing to our system. Uh, there are fines that, that, are, uh, that are levied in places like Germany. Germany has stopped paying for the tests, the virus tests, for people who choose to be unvaccinated. They've ended quarantine pay for those without vaccination. IKEA, the company, is slashing sick pay for unvaccinated U.K. workers. If you are a smoker, insurance companies can charge you more. They can charge you a premium up to 50%, and you have to put that on the form when you apply for insurance. At some point, don't we have to make people who are just saying, I'm willing to take the risk to be unvaccinated, take the risk for me, and take the risk for everyone I come in contact with. Shouldn't they have to pay more into the system because they are collapsing our health system? They are the ones in the ER. They're taking it up. If you have a stroke or you have a heart attack, you can't get in the ER because they're taking up all the beds. So shouldn't they have to pay more?
0: Look, this is the opposite of a socialist ideal. This is the opposite of that. Uh, This is a very right-wing, individualistic approach to public health. Now, listen, it's true that the unvaccinated are the people who are largely being hospitalized and getting really sick and dying. That's true, and that's a problem. Um, But she makes the smoker analogy there, and in my opinion, that's the thing that destroys her argument and doesn't make her argument for her. Because then this is a slippery slope where there's no end to it. So, listen, maybe some of you guys will say yes, but this is definitely not the way I think about these things. Should really overweight people have to pay more for health insurance? Should smokers have to pay more for health insurance? Should really overweight people have to pay more for... A plane ticket because they might take up a little bit more than a seat like the whole point of insurance is we all pay in and then whenever somebody gets sick they get help so it doesn't matter if i stay healthy all year and i'm paying into an insurance system i don't get that money back at the end of the year because i i didn't get sick you spread out the risk in an insurance system so we all pay in and then whoever needs the help gets the help and they don't go bankrupt when they need it. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way you know, it would work in like a single-payer country, for example. Um, in this country, we're way more hyper-individualistic. And that puts the onus and the burden on people, and they can't bear it. They can't bear the burden. And that's exactly what she's talking about here. So, look, it, we're, we are seeing it now. You know, there's talk about, well, you shouldn't allow the unvaccinated to get unemployment, for example or you shouldn't allow the unvaccinated access to the social safety net. Um, It's always punitive. It's always like, well, go after them. Why not look at it the other way? Why not just reward people for getting vaccinated? From the very beginning, it would have been a phenomenal idea to pay people $100 or $200 if they get vaccinated. And that would be an incentive for people to do the right thing, as opposed to this punitive approach where you try to disincentivize the wrong thing By making people's lives miserable in the process so i don't look people you guys have heard me talk about this i support a vaccinate or test approach to this stuff people have the right to make the wrong decision to make a dumb decision to make a stupid decision should drug addicts have to pay way more for their health insurance you know if if they're if they're addicted to a substance and they've overdosed a couple times, should they then have to pay more for their health insurance? Or when they go to the hospital, should they get a higher hospital bill? Because, hey, it was because of your actions that got you to this place. That's, not, that's the opposite of a socialist ideal. That's a very right-wing authoritarian approach to this stuff. I, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it. Now, again, if you're unvaccinated, understand. Uh, like, I'm not going to coddle to the unvaccinated on the show. A lot of people are doing... Um, content on the vaccines where they're like coddling anti-vaxxers. I'm not going to do that. You are making the wrong decision. If you're unvaccinated, you absolutely are. There was that French study that came out. uh, Over 20 million people were in the study and they found that the vaccines reduce severe illness, hospitalization and death by over 90%. So it is the wrong decision to not get vaccinated. um, But you have a right to do it, but you should do it like on, On your own volition, you should do it. And like I said, I would support uh, an incentive structure that would pay people to get vaccinated. Instead of doing a punitive approach for the unvaccinated, make it worth everybody's while to do it. Because obviously the public health education on this has been terrible because the CDC and the FDA have been wrong about a million things and nobody even trusts our institutions anymore. So just doing like an advertising campaign or something is not going to work on it. Why not pay people to get vaccinated? But no, they look at it like you have to punish them. You have to make them second-class citizens. You have to pay them less. You have to make them pay more premiums when it comes to health insurance. You have to... I mean, there was a list of stuff there. Let me see. I want to read off some of the headlines that she was doing, because it is true. Some other countries are doing this kind of stuff, and it's it's not something that I agree with. I think it's a deeply authoritarian approach to dealing with this, and I'm, I'm... an anti-authoritarian leftist. I'm a libertarian leftist. So Kroger removes some COVID-19 benefits for unvaccinated employees. So whatever, I don't know if they were getting more pay for working during the pandemic or whatever, but for unvaccinated people, they don't get it. Uh, Germany will stop paying for virus tests for people choosing to remain unvaccinated. I mean, that also, that affects other people too. If somebody's unvaccinated and they didn't get a test, they could have gotten a free test, but now they're saying no free tests. What if they, the illness, they don't even test and they just keep going about their day? I mean, it would, be, it would be a very dumb thing for them to do that. It'd be a very reckless thing for them to do that. But it also probably will happen, and it didn't have to happen if you had the free tests and they continued to get tested. So it's like, it's like what's the old saying? Cutting off your nose to spite your face? That's what that sounds like to me. Germany to end quarantine pay for those without vac- vaccinations. IKEA is slashing sick pay for unvaccinated UK workers. I don't like this punitive approach. And what we need to do is explain in a very clear way why it's the right thing for people to get vaccinated. And the government should set up a program where it makes it worth people's time to go get vaccinated, pay them 100 bucks, pay them 200 bucks, whatever it is. I mean, they should have done it from the beginning of the pandemic because then people are going to say, hey, what the hell, I got vaccinated because I'm intelligent and people who didn't are going to get paid now. So it should have been done maybe at the beginning of this, but that's more of an approach that I can get behind. Um, this idea of restricting their access to the social safety net or making them pay higher premiums or cutting their pay or whatever fill in the blank that is cutting off your nose to spite your face it's an authoritarian approach it's a hyper individualistic approach and i don't like it man i don't like it it's very dystopian and i don't want to give i don't want to give people who are objectively wrong on the question of the vaccines some sort of uh Accurate victim complex. Look, and a lot of you guys are going to disagree with me on this, but it's like the Novak Djokovic thing. Now, Novak Djokovic is selfish. Uh, he's an idiot. I've read some articles talking about his his medical beliefs and his scientific beliefs, and the guy's just gone. He's bonkers. Like he he went to a doctor a doctor in Serbia. The doctor put bread in one hand, and that hand was, went down more than the other hand, and they determined based off that that he's He has a gluten sensitivity. I mean, the guy he's got in St. he's an anti-vaxxer, true Kool-Aid-drinking anti-vaxxer. When he had COVID, he was still doing public events. Um, So on a personal level, I have zero uh, respect for Novak Djokovic and his actions during this pandemic and his beliefs. Um, But he was allowed into Australia originally to go play in the Australian Open. And then when he was there, they found that his exemption – Uh, to play unvaccinated. That was revoked. The prime minister said, we're not going to allow that. Then a judge overturned the prime minister's decision and said, no, he is allowed to do it because, hey, he filled out the paperwork and um, apparently had just had COVID recently and had beat it. So now he's immune that way. And the judge was like, well, what else would you want him to do? And um, then at the last minute, the immigration authorities in uh australia overturned the judge's ruling and he got he's getting deported and he can't play in the australian open so again personally i have no love for novak djokovic here but do i think he should have been allowed to play absolutely why well he just had covid now we know he has natural immunity so do we really think there's going to be like thousands of people who end up getting covid because of novak djokovic is is this really a public health thing or is it public health theater And I think the answer is it's public health theater. And it's not actually about safety anymore. It's not actually about making a scientific decision anymore. And they just wanted to be punitive because he's an anti-vax guy who just had natural immunity, but they wanted to make an example of him and say, look, you have to get vaccinated no matter what. I don't care about mitigating, mitigating circumstances. I don't care if you just had it and you're naturally immune. Um, and Australia is under much more strict COVID uh, protocols and laws compared to the U.S. and many other countries, and so I think people in Australia, many of them felt like, well, we've been suffering this whole time, and this guy gets to waltz in, and he's unvaccinated, and you bend the rules for him because he's the number one player in the world. I mean, I would just treat natural immunity the same as vaccine immunity, in my opinion, because it effectively is. It's actually maybe a little better. So it just strikes me as it's just punitive. It's not about science. It's not about medicine. It's not about public health. And again, many people in my own audience might disagree with me on this, but trying my best to be objective about it. And even though I am staunchly pro vaccine, this doesn't strike me as a good path to go down. It strikes me as definitionally authoritarian and not about public health anymore. And this you know, the the cracking down on unvaccinated people a variety of different ways, legally and with corporate policies That strikes me as unfair and unjust and authoritarian. And we should make the argument for people to get the vaccine because it's the right thing to get the vaccine. And we should incentivize the vaccine in a positive way instead of doing negative reinforcement. And they're going with the negative reinforcement stuff. And I do not like that one bit. I don't like it at all. So there you have it. I just want everybody to think very carefully about whether or not this is a path they want to go down. This Joanne Reed smug MSNBC approach of like, why not just punish people who are unvaccinated? And I say this as somebody who really has an incentive to be extra pissed off at the unvaccinated. Why? Because when I had to go to the hospital for my leg, when I ripped my calf, um, I was there for like seven hours, eight hours, something crazy. And The fact of the matter is there were so many COVID patients that people who weren't COVID patients really weren't able to see a doctor, had to wait preposterous hours. And there were people there going through withdrawal, people there who, you know, uh, just got into a car accident and they didn't have hospital beds. And it absolutely is the unvaccinated who are stressing the system because they're the ones who end up being hospitalized. And so fucking get vaccinated. Go do it. Go do it. Go do it now. But that doesn't mean I want to make them like second class citizens in service of getting the right reality ushered in. And um, also just beef up hospital. This is where where the Biden administration has failed. Like, come on. Why haven't you beefed up hospital capacity way more than it currently is? We were in a pandemic. It's obvious that's something you should have done. Why haven't you used the Defense Production Act to get the treatments that are necessary to all the hospitals, whether it's the monoclonal antibodies or remdesivir or whatever. Why haven't you already sent out N95 masks to all Americans? There's a number of things that could have been done that weren't done. And so this strikes me as a way to shift the conversation and just shift the blame and be punitive instead of actually putting policies in place that would fix the situation without doing any scapegoating. Or being authoritarian. So, there you have it. Um, Joanne Reed, with a terrible take, in my opinion, and we'll see if these kinds of policies end up coming, but I hope they don't. Okay. Next. Marianne Williamson has now been floated uh, in a number of outlets as a potential primary challenger to Biden in 2024, and um, I've talked about this a number of times already. I love the idea. I'm not going to get into all the reasons now why I love it. Just go check out those previous segments that I did where I explain in detail why I think it's a good idea. Um, she went and spoke to Jordan Chariton on Status Coup. By the way, everybody go subscribe to Jordan Chariton's channel because he, is, he gets suppressed by the YouTube algorithm even more than me. And this channel. And that says a lot, because we get suppressed by the YouTube algorithm. Um, what I want to show you here is a clip. This is Marianne Williamson doing, honestly, what she does best, which is she breaks down the psychological battering of the working class and how we got to this point. Now, I was previously very critical of Marianne Williamson. And actually, I said things that, I, I, in retrospect, I regret. Um, you know, in the original run, I, did, I was with the chorus of people who was like, it was Crystal Lady, woo-woo, nonsense, it's silly. No. No. Mary Ann is absolutely positively sincere. It's not an act, and she's thought deeply about the psychological aspect of politics, the philosophical aspect of politics, but also the spirituality involved in it. Now, me personally, I'm not a spiritual person. Everybody knows that, but that doesn't mean that there aren't valid lines of inquiry talking about those topics. So here she is talking to Jordan Sheridan, and she's going to get into the psychological battering of the working class and the results of that and then we'll come back and break it down. Whoops. Kind of from a psychological level, I I travel so much and something I'm saying more and more, it's not just
5: that we're so polarized, uh, it's it's also that I think there's so many people, whether it's on the left, right, whatever, that are without leaders and kind of hopeless, for lack of a better word, and it's really creating this vacuum for them to fall into some, uh, some dark spaces, whether it be cons- yeah. conspiratorial, um, you know, blaming, uh, blaming the other. I wanted to ask you because you have talked a lot about that and just when people don't
3: have hope, uh, it, it fosters the conditions for people to go into more dark thinking and uh, mm-hmm. rabbit holes. If you only look at our situation from a material perspective, people have every reason to be depressed because if you only look at things in terms of the externalities, it is as bad as people fear. The system is all locked up. But the problem with our politics is that it's only seen things through the filter of externalities. So if you think that that's all there is, then people being disillusioned is not a bad thing. It just means you were under an illusion before that you ever thought it was as simple as that. So on one hand, the fact that people are recognizing what's bad is not of itself a bad thing. You know, sometimes depression, anxiety, real like being really sad about something is not dysfunctional. Sometimes it's functional. If you have a broken leg, if you have a broken arm, the the brain registers pain. And the brain registers pain for a reason. It's a functional response of the body because the brain is telling you you need to address this and you need to reset the bone. When conditions are really bad in your life and you feel an upset about it, it's your psyche telling you you need to address this. We need to change our think. We need to change our thinking. We need to reset our thinking, just like you reset a bone, and we need to reset our social and economic system. Now, if you think that we have to look to the same people who created this mess to fix it, then of course you feel upset. If uh, the people's rage and upset is legitimate, what's illegitimate from a larger perspective is to think that that's all you have. You know, we're not the first generation to be faced with conditions that were seemingly intractable. You know, there was no reason on a rational level to believe that the abolitionists would prevail. All the the economic system of the South was against them. Huge economic and political forces were against them. There was no reason for the women suffragettes to think that the suffrage movement would prevail. Huge economic and political uh, and misogynistic systems were against them. There was no reason, rationally, for the civil rights uh, movement uh, to believe that they could prevail, but they, 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 they worked anyway, and ultimately they succeeded, and so much of our public conversation today peripheralizes the tools and the mindset that is most needed at this time in order to prevail and which former generations knew.
0: I think that's brilliant, and I think what people are starting to realize now that they perhaps didn't realize in the past even in the recent past, is that the fight, by its very nature, is virtuous. The fight, by its very nature, is an end in and of itself. Because people think about politics in a means-to-an-end kind of way. We have to do these things so that we get to this end goal, which is whatever the end goal may be to create a better society. You fill in the blank with whatever policy pops to your mind. But for the people who've won victories, for the people who were part of these mass movements in American history that got us from point A to point B, they didn't know or even feel like at the time, oh, this is gonna work. In retrospect, we look at it and we're like, oh, look, it worked. And we tend to put our own current perception, we superimpose it onto them as if they thought every step of the way, well, it was gonna work. Of course, we're just, we're gonna end segregation. That's what's gonna happen. We're gonna have the Voting Rights Act. We're gonna have the Civil Rights Act. It's gonna happen in the mid mid 1960s in that decade. Um, No. If you told somebody in 1957 in Mississippi, hey, this, thing is, this whole system of organization is going to collapse soon, they'd look at you like you're fucking crazy. If you told people in the middle of Prohibition, hey, soon we're going to get rid of Prohibition, they'd be like, what? But the people who won those battles, they were acting out of moral and ethical convictions, not taking no for an answer, not stopping and understanding that the fight is virtuous in and of itself and the fight is an end in and of itself. Just the act of getting out of bed and going to wage that battle is something that brings meaning and purpose and fulfillment to your life. And that's what Marianne Williamson is touching on right here. When people, and she's right, people feel battered by the system, and that's a rational response. You're supposed to feel that way because you know everything's messed up. That's why you feel that way. So a lot of people think it's an individual problem. It's not an individual problem. Do you have some sort of mental illness or psychological problem, or is it just a problem problem? Well, when you look at the system, it's very clear. You're not crazy. You're not mentally ill. A A lot of people, you guys don't even have psychological problems. You just have problem problems. You can't pay the bills. You're going bankrupt from a medical bill. You can't get a job. Your job was outsourced. You know, you feel like you're stuck in a rut and you're not climbing any ladder of opportunity. There's no hope. Are these psychological problems? Do you have mental illness that's making you feel terrible? Or is it just a problem problem? It's a problem problem and we have to address it. That's not to say there are no psychological problems or mental illness. Of course there are. But a lot of the times in modern society, we have problem problems that are masquerading as mental illness or psychological problems. And... They want to make you feel like it's just an issue with you. But what if it's not? What if it's an issue with the broader society? And what you do is you need to channel that anger and those negative emotions into that positive fight. So she goes on to talk about, look, there are different kinds of outrage. There's moral outrage, which is ennoble. But then there's also dysfunctional outrage, which leads to nihilism. The point of the outrage can't just be the criticism. And this is something Contra points did a wonderful video on Envy a while back. And she talks about resentment politics in that video. And it's a brilliant portion of the video. And basically what she says is, to the people who practice resentment politics, it's not actually about solutions at all in any way, shape, or form. It's not about materially improving conditions for people right now, however we can. No. The whole point of resentment politics is the critique is the criticism, and the problems are just a pretext to get the criticism out. We need to turn away from the path of political nihilism and moral nihilism, and we need to turn away from dysfunctional outrage and channel it into moral outrage in the cause of justice. And it's easy for any of us to come out here and talk about the problems nonstop. We do it. Look, I'm not knocking it. That's part of my job. It's not the biggest part of my job but we also need to lean heavily into the solutions and be specific and be clear and be understandable and intuitive so everybody gets it and everybody's willing to take on that battle. So we need to channel all the anger and pain and and hurt in a positive direction. And don't use dysfunctional outrage. Use moral outrage and engage in the fight in a way where we can win. However that ends up manifesting. Look, I think Marion Williams should run for president. We don't have anything to lose. The left is fractured and factionalized and at each other's throats. And the only way we're going to get to a point where we usher in Medicare for all, free college, abolishing student loan debt, a living wage, the PRO Act, ending the wars, legalizing marijuana, freeing the nonviolent drug offenders, you go down that list. The only way we're going to get to that is if we start fighting and never stop and also understand the fight in and of itself is what brings purpose and meaning, regardless of the outcome. Fight like we have nothing to lose because we don't have anything to lose. We're at rock bottom. They want to keep you battered and alienated and atomized and alone. They want you to feel like that's all you got is this hyper-individualistic dreary existence in a capitalist state that is not all you got it's about solidarity and unity and organization it's about collective bargaining starting a union engaging in the negotiations it's about working together and lobbying on specific issues to specific local governments or state governments it's about mobilizing for dsa or any other group you want it's about marianne williamson running for president and all of us Putting our heart and soul into it. Now I get it. You know when uh, when Bernie ran and didn't win, a lot of people felt so burned that they just shut down. I get it, man. I'm not passing judgment on you. I'm sympathetic. Those feelings are justifiable and understandable. But it's also exactly what they want you to do. It's also self disenfranchisement. Self-disenfranchisement, excuse me, which serves the establishment better than anything or anybody else. So I'm just going to say no to self-disenfranchisement. I'm going to say no to endless political nihilism and dysfunctional outrage. I'm going to say yes to moral outrage. I'm going to say yes to fighting back as a matter of principle, regardless of what happens. And Marianne Williamson is the only person uh, that fits this role ideally at the moment. It's her moment. She's the voice of the current time, and I've never felt that more strongly than I do right now. And so it's time to take on that fight. It's time to try our best to make the arc of history bend towards justice like Martin Luther King said it does. So there you have it, brilliant commentary from uh, Marianne Williamson. Everybody go check out her talk with Jordan Chariton, and uh, it's time to hashtag draft Marianne because – She's the one that this moment is calling for. And I think at this point, it's obvious. Okay, next. So Senator Chris Murphy um, was previously fighting on this issue of Saudi Arabia. He didn't want to arm them because of what they're doing in Yemen and they're committing a genocide and... Um, can't allow it. Well, he did not about-face, so he spoke to Mehdi Hassan on his show and didn't do a great job defending his heel turn.
2: Let's talk about another humanitarian crisis that you and I have discussed before, Yemen. Uh, I've had you on this show. Uh, you and I have agreed about the Saudis' uh, pernicious and brutal role uh, in that country. You have led the opposition to the U.S.-led war in uh, Yemen, uh, over the last what? Obama, Trump and Biden. And yet, last month the Senate voted down a resolution that would have prohibited a six hundred and fifty million dollar arms deal with Saudi Arabia. Ahead of the Senate vote, Bernie Sanders, Paul, people you've allied with in the past on this issue, they came out against it. They said this, do not sell those weapons. You voted in favour of selling those weapons, even though you've repeatedly criticised American arms deal with Saudi Arabia. And last year you even said you supported a suspension of all weapon sales to Saudi Arabia until there is a substantial
5: change in behavior. There hasn't been. So why did you do that last month? Yeah. Thanks for giving me the chance to explain this because you're right. I, I mean, I started the effort in the Senate to end support for the Yemen war. I was bringing resolutions on the Senate floor back during the Obama administration when I could only get a couple dozen senators to vote with me, and I remain convinced that the United States should not be selling any offensive weapons to the Saudis, should not be selling anything that can be used inside Yemen. Um, what has changed over the course of the last 12 months is a significant increase in attacks from Yemen into Saudi Arabia. We have tens of thousands of U.S. citizens inside Saudi Arabia. I have said for a long time we should be in the business of trying to prevent these attacks from inside Yemen. designed to hurt U.S. civilians and Saudi civilians inside Saudi Arabia. This sale was air-to-air munitions, essentially the exact weapons that are used to shoot down the missiles and the drones that come into Saudi Arabia from Yemen. It's why I supported it. But I get it. It wasn't an easy call for me, because I also understand there's a good case to be made that you shouldn't be selling any weapons to a leader like Mohammed bin Salman, who He has such egregious egregious behavior in his own country and around the region. But in this case, uh, I think that those defensive sales um, are in the U.S.
0: interest, especially seeing that we have so many citizens in Saudi Arabia. Total nonsense. The idea that we're selling defensive weapons to Saudi Arabia now, BS. Amnesty International released a a report and said, no, these can easily be used for offensive purposes, and they are. Look at this totally corrupt, smug prick. Everybody, by, by the way, I didn't do this before the segment, but you go and check where his campaign contributions are coming from. I guarantee you some of them are coming from defense contractors. So he's serving his donors by uh, giving the Saudis more weapons, voting to give the Saudis more weapons. They are absolutely committing a genocide in Yemen. They are bombing hospitals and mosques and open-air markets. They are um, blockading the biggest port and starving people. And he used to pretend like, oh, me, I'm fighting for justice, and I don't want Saudi Arabia to get any weapons, and so I'm going to stand up for that. And then now he turns around and votes to give them more weapons. And he says, well, it's, uh, you know, it's defensive or something, because now you have Yemen is fighting back. Yeah, if, if Yemen is fighting back, by the way, that's called self-defense. That's called they're trying to stop the aggressor from continuing to murder them. That's what that is. Well, there are some Americans in Saudi Arabia, and so we're protecting them by giving a genocidal regime that butchers journalists and children more weapons. Guys like Chris Murphy are why people don't trust politicians at all, because he was morally grandstanding, and then did a total flip-flop on the issue and made an ass of himself. It's shameless. I I don't know how Chris Murphy looks at himself in the mirror. I don't know. I don't know how he sleeps at night. I mean, it is, he's just a miserable failure and a corrupt goon and a puppet to a genocidal dictator. That's what he is. There's an easy way, as Noam Chomsky says, there's an easy way um, to stop terrorism. Stop participating in it. And that's my message to the U.S. government and U.S. government officials. Um, You want to make the world a better place? You want to stop terrorism? Just stop participating in it. Stop arming brutal regimes. Stop arming Israel and Saudi Arabia. 73% of the world's dictatorships are funded by the U.S. military, by the U.S. government. 73%. We arm 73% of the world's dictatorships as we lecture the world about human rights and values and justice. It's a sick joke and this guy is the worst hypocrite of them all. Okay. All right, here we go. So the U.S is now ending daily COVID death reporting. Take a look at this. Breaking. U.S. government to end daily COVID death reporting. A document issued January 6th by the U.S. Health and Human Services uh, tells hospitals they are no longer required to report daily COVID-19 deaths to the federal government starting February 2nd. Story broken by data-driven MD. Um, I love how they uh, released this on January 6th. Basically trying to bury it in at a time when all the talk in the country was about, or all the talk in the media, at least, was about the um, anniversary of January 6th. Uh, really, really loathsome stuff there. So we are now at the phase of the pandemic where they're doing this.
1: Nah, 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 I can't see you, you can't be real, because I can't see you, doesn't matter.
0: So, um, and I'm sure the media is going to go along with this to extent or another, where they act like, well, the numbers haven't gone up Uh, with COVID today. Maybe we've turned the corner. And it's like, no, maybe they didn't go up because we're not reporting daily anymore. I mean, this is is what a failed government does. I'm not going to tell you the facts anymore because the facts hurt our feelings too much and make us look dumb. Well, that's why we need to know the facts so that we can keep pressuring you to do the right thing. I mean, Kamala Harris couldn't answer basic questions in an interview with an MSNBC host. It was like, shouldn't you have done a lot of these things sooner? You know, send out N95 masks and do free testing. And I I would add to that, do the Defense Production Act to increase all the treatments for COVID, whether it's remdesivir or uh, monoclonal antibodies. The specific kind of monoclonal antibodies that work against Omicron are in short supply. Uh, By the way, at the same time this is going on, I think it was either the CDC or the FDA, they just admitted that cloth masks masks don't work nearly as well as N95 masks. There's a hierarchy of masks, just like there's a hierarchy of the vaccines, which ones work better and which ones don't. There's a hierarchy of the masks, and cloth masks are at the bottom. Um, And the CDC just admitted that. Now, why is this so frustrating and so annoying? We knew months ago or a year ago that that's the case, that cloth masks don't work nearly as well as N95 masks and KN95 masks don't work as well as N95 masks. We knew this from a number of reports and studies, and the CDC or the FDA just now came around to saying, oh, by the way, we're two years into the pandemic. You couldn't say this earlier? What's wrong with you? Another thing, has there been any stressing at all or even an acknowledgement in official circles that, as we now know, the virus can enter through your eyes? So everybody's walking around with masks on, but their eyes have zero protection, and people end up getting the virus. And they're like, well, what the hell? How'd I get the virus? I was wearing my mask all day. Because it entered through your eyes. We talked about it on this show. I told you the, the, the studies that came out on it. There was a rhesus monkeys. They did a study with that where some really high percentage of them got it through the eyes. There was, uh, there's been a bunch of data that's come out on this over an extended period of time. Even some people manifest uh, COVID with eye symptoms. Our government hasn't, I don't even know if they've said it, never mind, said it and then said, hey, you know, you might want to wear sunglasses or wear glasses that are prescriptionless or whatever, just to cover your eyes, just, just to be safe. They never said any of this. At, at every step of the way, the federal government has abdicated their responsibility to protect the citizens of this country and to give people information and facts. And when they did say stuff, oftentimes it ended up being totally wrong. So this is why there's a crisis in our institutions, because they're not good at doing basic things. It's preposterous. It's so stupid. Two years in. Hey, by the way, cloth masks don't work that well. You could have told us this when we had the information a year ago. No, they didn't. And now they're just going to pretend. They're just going to pretend. Well, uh, we turned the corner because we stopped reporting daily. But anyway, so, I don't know, whatever. Get off our ass. Oh, Jesus Christ. In any ways, you feel like you're on your own with public health, because you are. And by the way, I put the blame squarely on them for the rise in anti-vax beliefs. Because the institutions have lied to us and been wrong so many times, the people started doing their own research, and they start turning to cranks who are even bigger charlatans than the federal government. But it's because you weren't open and honest and direct from the beginning that has led people to go towards terrible sources to get what they think are, is real information. L's all around baby L's all around all right final story of the day I love this next story I love this next story So there's a new book that came out called Battle for the Soul. um, And it's like sort of a behind-the-scenes 2020 election book. And, man, there are some gems gems in there. So um, Crystal Ball tweeted this. In that book, Battle for the Soul, Kamala Harris is so vapid and vacuous and directionless, and she cares so little about policy, that when she was already running for president, Uh, She kept referring to Medicare for all in speeches as Medicaid for all. Guys, this is 2019, 2020. Medicaid for all. Barney popularized it. I mean, it's... The slogan and the policy has existed for a very long time, but Bernie really popularized it in 2015. And in 2019, you still didn't know it was Medicare for all? What does that show? Well, it shows exactly what we already knew about Kamala Harris, and the rest of the book bears this out as well. The whole thing was about narcissism. It was an ego trip. She would do these events for presidents. She would give these speeches, and 100% of the commentary would be about her. You know, her life, her story, her family, me, 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 me. She cared so little about policy that it was Medicaid for all. And, and so what did she do? I, and they explain this in the, in the book, by the way. They say, she had calculated nobody's even going to support Bernie. So it, it's good for me to hop in early. So she was the first person to sign on to Bernie's Medicare for all bill. Um, but it was all, it was all a show. She thought, I'll get the credibility that I need um, with the if I sign on to this. Bernie's useless anyway. He's not going to make a run at it. Of course, Bernie destroyed Kamala Harris in, in the race, and Kamala miscalculated. But she signed on to it as a political strategy. She didn't actually believe in it. She didn't really support it. She didn't even know it was called Medicare for All. She called it Medicaid for All repeatedly. And, by the way, you're right for the scariest part. When she did this, it worked. This strategy worked. This is when she was very high in the polls, when she jumped into the race and she pretended early on, I'm totally like Bernie, except I'm a young black woman. So therefore, why don't you vote for Bernie in a better package, a young black woman package? So she had the identity angle, and then she was pretending to have the policy angle. But really, it was all, it was all a farce. It was all a farce. We also learned that her favorite line, that little girl was me, where she went after Joe Biden, um, totally preplanned. Every aspect of that was they, they had a long debate beforehand, her and her staffers, about what to say and what to do. So, in other words, everything you thought you knew about her is correct. Everything. Remember when she made her campaign about banning Trump from Twitter? And even Elizabeth Warren was like, seriously, this is, this is your big thing? You think you're doing a gotcha of everybody else on stage by saying, I want to ban him. What about you? Directionless. And, by the way, when she stopped playing that game of, you know, I'm going to sign on to Bernie's stuff, when she realized Bernie was a real threat, she had to back away from all the stuff that she – Co-signed with them, and so that's when she totally tanked in the polls because she was clearly not for Medicare for All. Again, she didn't even know it was called Medicare for All when she signed on to She thought it was Medicaid for All. Useless, useless, narcissistic ego trip. She's exactly what everybody thought she was, which is why she's polling at 28%. So imagine at this crucial point in American history and world history, we have people who have the ambition to be president with None of the actual moral and ethical vision and policy ideas. That is terrifying. All right, guys. We're done, baby. I love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.
6: With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere.